It's a privilege to um, be here with you this morning. Who's been to the movies recently? Yeah? What was the opening scene of the movie? Can you remember? So, you know, you're in the picture theatre, and yeah, you've got your popcorn, you've got your ice cream, you know, you're chatting. Uh, you can see the person just down the other end of the, down the aisle, they've still got their phone, someone else is chatting. Finally, the lights are going down, yeah, becoming dark. What's, what's the opening scene? The, the part after the ads. After the ads. Finally, the movie's starting. What's, what's, the, what's the opening scene of a recent movie you saw? What else? Any other movies you... Okay. Yeah, yeah. And we've all had that, yeah? We've had the go to the movies and, you know, for the boy movies, there might be, you know, the opening scenes of this car, whoosh, yeah? Or there might be a of some helicopter or some of that. Or it might be, um, you know, some teenage girl on her bed, you know, uh, scrolling through a phone. Or there might be, you know, some sort of camera coming down on a river and then there's mist and, ooh, what, what's happening here? Again, just using the imagination muscle that Peter tried to get you to use, I want you to picture this opening movie scene. Here you are in the movie theatre. You know, credits, everything, lights down. And then behind you, you start to hear this deep sort of, yeah, sort of a rumble sort of the beginnings of some sort of fanfare, some sort of, some sort of music which seems to go, okay, this could, you start to think, okay, this could start to crescendo, this could start to become really big. Then as this movie, as this sound is starting to build, the, the camera starts to pan on, oh, hang on, there's some buildings here which are starting to come into view, Yeah? And the camera pans into these, these buildings and you, you think, goodness me, they are rather well built. Rather exquisite looking architecture on those buildings. And then a, the, the camera pans out and it's like, goodness me, there, there's a lot here. And oh, goodness me, they, these buildings are, oh, they are exquisite. They are well built. They are, oh, there must be something special about this city. Yeah? And the camera pans around and, and then it starts to see and, the, and you start to see some people walking through and, and people seem to be going in, uh, heading somewhere. And, and these people, and the, the, the filmmaker is trying to give this representation of, oh, that's a world leader in the business world. Oh, that person there, oh, wow, yep, is a... There's a global military leader. Oh, look, there's some politicians. There's some well-known scientists. Uh, and there's all these powerful people which are, are starting to move into and, and starting to be in that city. And you're thinking, okay, and you're referencing other movies. As this is happening, as the sound is happening, as this picture, you're starting, okay, what should happen now is this great big building come out in the centre... And it's the, you know, the big building over everything. This is... But no. There's... Hang on. There's no central focus. And then you start to realise 
there is something different about this city. There is no one place where there is the source of power. There is no one place where the source of governance. And what you begin to realise is in a very limited expression, this filmmaker is trying to give you a picture of the New Jerusalem. And there in this New Jerusalem, there in this city, there is no one place where God is. God is everywhere. As it says in Revelations 21 verse 22, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine. The glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honour. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, and they shall bring the glory and honour of the nations into it. Revelations 21:22, The Lord God Almighty... Here at the centre, flowing through the centre of that, here is the Lord God Almighty. The Almighty God, the ruler of all, the supreme power, the only one with infinite strength. It's a very poor representation and description of the mightiness and the almightiness of God. But right there in the centre of it all, right that the focus of all of that is just those three words, the Lord God Almighty, the ruler of all, the supreme power, the only one with infinite strength. This is the God we serve. Yeah? This is the one that we call Lord. The first aspect I want to cover of God being almighty is the visible demonstration of his power. God demonstrates his mightiness, if you will, through visible demonstrations of that power. Hebrews 1.3 says this, He is the reflection of God's glory, yes, it's talking about Jesus, uh, and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. He sustains all things by his powerful word. He sustains, he carries, God holds, God bears all things. You know, I've just recently listened to some podcasts about particle physics and about dark matter and all that sort of stuff. He holds all of that. Gravity. He holds all of that. Our very being, our thinking. It, the Bible explicitly says that God carries all things. He holds all things. He bears all things. He has complete executive control over all things. Period. No one can argue with God. <laughs> He's God, yeah? He has complete executive control over all things. What God says goes. So to illustrate this, think of our workplaces. The managers, executives, you know, apart from people working by themselves, but you're still working for other people. And in workplaces, there's managers, executives, there's the workers, there's things. And hopefully everybody is going in the same direction. You know, managers managing, executives executing, and workers uh, doing their work. 
you know, making these decisions. And we know how it works. You know, from time to time, managers, they hire people. Managers fire people. For me, if I wind the clock back into the early 2000s, after moving here from Alice Springs, I was, a, I was an IT contractor for several years. So I was full-time IT and before that av aviation in Alice Springs, moved down here. So for several years, I was an IT contractor and then a full-time work with the Salvation Army. And during this uh, period of four years, uh, and I realised this a, a bit later on, but here I am in the period of with one of these firms I was working with. Realised a bit later on that one of these companies, it wasn't going well for them. You know, they'd made some bad financial calls. And what happened is that the boss called me into his office. Paul, going to have to let you go. Simple as that. <laughs> Take the train home. I open the door, Helen, lost my job. No fault of my own. In that period of time, my manager had control over my life, yeah? You're not working here anymore, go. Yeah? Complete control. You know, I'm left to pick up the pieces. <laughs> Uh, we both are, you know, what's happened? Mortgage, feed the kids, next job, yada, yada, yada. Yeah? But the point I'm trying to drive here is, is my manager had power over me. He exercised that power, if you will, to shape my life. That situation was beyond my control, if you will. He was given authority to make a decision, he made it. You know, each of us, we have bosses, we have teachers. We have people over positions, you know, in authority over us, yeah? And if you will, you can see that they have some control over our lives. What I'm trying to drive at here is that God has the ultimate power to control things. So Peter, with the, uh, the story leading up to the Exodus, you know, there's all these plagues get severe, 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 until the last one, get out of here. <laughs> yeah? So they... There's several hundred kilometres of from when they're being told get out to when they go down the peninsula and they're there and they're faced there with the Red Sea crossing. The Red Sea crossing is about 16 kilometres. And so... You can imagine what is happening here. I'll get to it in a little bit. But here's Moses. And what does he say? What, what happens in verse 21? And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord caused the sea to recede by a strong east wind all night. And made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the sons of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground. And the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. They crossed the Red Sea. So like Peter was trying to explain here and going through, we sometimes we just read these verses and it's just fairly dry. But what was actually happening here? Who was Pharaoh? A lot of historians say it was Ramses II. You know, here's this Pharaoh of Egypt. He has control. He has power. You know, it, the army that they had, probably about 100,000 people perhaps, 100,000 men, 
He, you know, he was saying, okay, okay, boys, go and conquer those people over the, on, you know, next to us. And the boys go out and they conquer, decimate, bring back the loot. Pharaoh says, go and destroy those navies that are trying to get to us and, and, and to blockade. The army goes, destroys. Yeah? What power, what control did uh, Ramses have over the Israelites? More stones, more mud, more. Yeah? Do it. And they did it. If they didn't, <laughs> too bad. He had control. Now, Peter was saying there's probably about 2 million uh, Israelites left. Well, if the city was probably sitting around 4, 5, 6 million people around that, Egyptians, that's a sizable portion of the population, yeah? There's about a third, probably a quarter or a third of the population have, have left. What do you think is going to happen to Pharaoh? What have I done? <laughs> Got by his remorse. He's let them go. And so here's, here's the situation that Peter described. They're up. There's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Can you imagine about a quarter of Melbourne getting up and walking on the Western Highway to Adelaide? <laughs> and, you know, it just wouldn't be like in the movies where there's a dozen people you know, following this. No, it's hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people and they're walking and they're, and they're down. It's about 300 kilometres down the peninsula. They walk, they get there, and like Peter was saying, they've left certainty. What is happening to me? They're here, they're down the bottom, they can see some land there, there's 16 kilometres of water there, and they can start to see about 100,000 of Egyptians' finest coming after them. And they're not coming after them with lunch baskets. They've come to bring them back. They've come to destroy them. They've come to, no. What do you think would go through your head, through your heart? <laughs> this is not good. Yeah? I'm trying to paint a picture here. There's, yes, there's that faith in God, but there's that terror which is building and all that sort of stuff. Then Moses goes, water parts, they walk across dry land. Get to the other side. But the sons of Israel, Exodus 14, 29 says, walked upon dry land in the middle of the sea and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and their left. Verse 30. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. 31. And Israel saw that the, the great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. They go through that 16 kilometres. They're there. They're safe. The waters have come. And, you know, they're all perhaps milling around, talking through what happened. And then they start to see on the seashore there's dead Egyptians. There's Pharaoh's finest. <laughs> there's the chariots. There's the horses, all dead. And 
And Israel, verse 30, saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw the great work which the Lord uh, did upon the Egyptians. And the, uh, and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. They were in awe of God. Not that long ago, these people were beating them. They were watching the military's finest. Yeah? Now here they are. God said, come on, come on. Come down into the trap. Crush. God's God. God's in control. That is who we serve. What was their response? It's not a, not a cowering, oh, don't beat me, master. No. There was this war. There was this reverence. There was a level of respect for God that they did not have before. They had gone through that. They had seen the Egyptians wash up on the shore. My God. If you can do that. So what about us? Do we get a little bit too familiar with God? Oh yeah, he loves me. Do we lose that sense of awe and reverence for God? Acts 5 records Ananias Sapphira didn't, didn't work out too well for them. You know, do we say, ah, oh, it's only a little sin, you know, he understands me. <laughs> I'm good. I've done nothing wrong. That's a little lack of humility. Psalm 47 verse 2 says, For the Lord Most High is to be feared and worshipped with awe-inspired reverence and obedience. He is the great king over all the earth. Our response to Almighty God should be one of reverence and obedience. It's the same God who did that. I'm not talking about here, carry and so like, no, 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 God, I'll, I'll do anything you say, God. No. It's standing boldly and knowing and having that confidence, but maintaining that awe, maintaining that reverence that God is God. We're serving the Lord God Almighty, yeah? yeah. The second aspect I want to cover of God being Almighty is the personal demonstration of his power. You know, God doesn't use Red Sea moments all the time, yeah? You know, he doesn't like, okay, I want to show Peter my uh, great might and power and I'm going to cause a horde of nasty people to be outside this house, throw stones, call in names, you know, just all this marvelous things. And then what I'm going to do, I'm going to cause them all to go blind, have an earthquake for them all to be swallowed up in the earth. Yeah? God doesn't have to have Red Sea moments all the time. You know, God doesn't say, hey, Paul, go down the Melbourne CBD, and as you are walking down there, I'm going to cause all the buildings to fall around you, and you will be protected. <laughs> Just like some TV ad, some TV insurance ad. God doesn't need Red Sea moments all the time to demonstrate his power. Sometimes, God just wants to speak to us about a situation. Hey, just stand back and watch what I want to do, what I'm going to do. 
So here's me in this four years of, you know, contracting, being anxious, yeah? What's going to happen? I can remember distinctly during this period of time, walking out of my garage, walking into the house, and as if God just plonked into my, to my head this scripture, Psalm 37, 25. I have been young, and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging for bread. Yeah? It wasn't like, I'm going to have a big Red Sea moment, Paul. No, I'm just walking in. God just said, hey, shh. Let me demonstrate my might this way. Just be quiet. Just listen. You know, at the start of Exodus 14, the Lord spoke to Moses. Here's some instructions. But Moses had to be listening. Yeah? Yes, there was that big Red Sea moment for everybody and they saw everything and, and all of that. But God said, hey Moses, I'm going to do something. Can you listen? Just obey. For Moses, there was a great demonstration of God's might. But for Paul in Acts 16.9, it was a demonstration of his might in a different way. It was still the demonstration of his might. It was a dream to say, Paul, go to Macedonia. I want you to preach over there. And perhaps, Lee, you know, that probably started a pattern for Paul's missionary journeys a little bit later on, whatever. But there was a, a speaking to Moses. There was a speaking to Paul. I'm going to demonstrate to you my might this way. You see, the demonstration of God's might might just be in the small things. Yeah? It might be in those, those situations which turn around. The favour that God seems to bestow on us in situations. We just need to be listening. That's it. You know, remember Hebrews 1.3. He sustains all things by his powerful word. Yeah, there's that listening aspect. You know, Exodus 14.1. Listen to me, Moses. I will be doing something. Acts 16.9. Paul, I want to change some things elsewhere. I want to express my might somewhere else. Can you listen to me? It's not always the mighty things that God does. But he does have the might to do things. It's not always the mighty things that God does, but he does have the might to do things. He is the almighty God. Reflect on a situation in recent times that went well for you. That you know that God was involved with. Was it your brilliance? <laughs> was it your power? Or was it your, oh yeah, this situation turns around because of you know, your good looks? No. God got involved. It was his ability to get things done. You know, I have, you know, limited power over my wife, you could say. <laughs> I can say, honey, can you go and buy me some bread from the shop? Yeah, please. And being a good wife and friend, she does, yeah. 
But did she or I have a control over someone completely different, unrelated, giving me a job? No. That's the expression of God's might that way. His might is not limited to overt and dramatic demonstrations of power. It includes a changing of hearts. Yeah? It includes orchestrating situations around us. It includes giving us abilities and understandings to get things done and so on. We need, we just need to listen. We need to have a soft heart toward God. We need to watch for what God is doing. Isaiah 55 verse 3 says this, Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and hear. Incline your ear, come unto me and hear. So let's draw these threads together and bring this to a close. We've seen that God is a mighty God, yeah? With the, the, all those events leading up to that expulsion, like just go. We've seen that and we've seen the Red Sea and everything involved in there and the people's response. We've seen that. We've seen that God is a mighty God through the Red Sea. And we've seen that one of the reasons God speaks to us is that he wants us to see what he can do. Yeah? Moses, Exodus 14.1. Lord speaks to Moses. Paul in Acts 16.9. Can you do something here? And yes, our stance should be one of listening. Incline your ear to me and hear. But our response should be awe and reverence. Yeah? Not just blase. We're listening to God. We're listening to the Almighty. He is God. Almighty God. He sustains all things. There is nothing God cannot do. Do you need healing? Yeah? Do you need a change of situation? Do you need to, for God to move in your life? He can do it. He is Almighty God. Yeah? Do you want to see others experience the forgiveness that you have? Do you want others to see, uh, the, uh, the, uh, experience the life, uh, the forgiveness, uh, the sense of heaven uh, 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 being your home? Do you want other people to see that? He can do it. He can. He is almighty God. He is on the throne. He is all powerful. I was really heartened. You know, just as being a member of our congregation uh, last week, listening to Mel, just the power of God, the power of the gospel hasn't changed, can still save, can still bring healing, can still bring deliverance, can still bring people into this place. People can still, God can do it. He is the almighty God. Finish with this story. Isaiah the prophet had a vision 
when his king, King Isaiah, died. King Isaiah had ruled rather well for 50 years. Yeah. So here's Isaiah, the prophet, gets on well with this king, you know, King Uzziah, he's, he's ruling well. He's respected. There's, you know, it's, it's gone rather well. And Isaiah was in grief. Isaiah was thinking, what are we going to do now? This great king has, is dead. It's over. Are we going to go back to, you know, the bad kings? But in that moment, God reminded Isaiah that he was still on the throne. That the real source of power and majesty and might was still on the throne, was still there, was still over it all. You know, we read in Isaiah 6, 1 to 5, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah, woe is me. Woe is me. Isaiah was present. He was listening to God. And his response in verse 5 was awe-inspired reverence. A few verses later in verse 8, God asks, who will go? And Isaiah's response was obedience. I will go. How do you and I respond to the might of God, to God being the almighty one that he is. How do we respond? We need to be in his presence. We need to be listening. But we need to have an attitude of awe-inspired reverence. And we need to submit in obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you are God. We're thankful that you indeed are almighty God. Heavenly Father, as we come afresh before you, just want to perhaps set things right in our own hearts or to refresh things.